If you have ever been a part of a high school football locker room on a football Friday, you know that it's an unforgettable experience. And so for those of you who haven't, I thought maybe I could paint a little bit of a picture for you, if that's okay. Is that all right? So you, you get to the locker room. First of all, there's 60 or 80 teenage guys. You've just got to come to grips with that immediately, okay? And the locker room is loud. There's loud music. Kids are joking around as they get dressed. But the closer that you get to kickoff, uh, things begin to change. And you run out there for your warm-ups, and you look up at the scoreboard with its countdown, and the crowd starts to filter in, and you're sort of working up a sweat and getting ready for this game. But then you go back into the locker room into this small locker room with these 60, 80 guys, and that's when the first very memorable little thing hits you, which is that smell. Oh, my word. If you know the smell, you'll never forget it. 60 or 80 sweaty high school teenage boys in their pads that have just been soaking sweat for months at this point. You don't forget that. But also, the atmosphere has changed. Because some guys are now, as you get closer to kickoff, some guys are embracing that emotion and they're getting pumped up and excited while other guys sort of start to sit in a corner and they get quiet and antsy the closer you get to kickoff. Well, the coach will call you around, the music will shut off, and then he'll give you all these silent locker room, his last bits of inspiration and advice before my very favorite part would take place, which is he would say, take a knee. And in that locker room, and I've went to a public school and I've coached football in public schools, but in every locker room, it was always the same. All around the locker room, everybody takes a knee and you grab the hand of the person that's next to you, these brothers that you're about to do battle with, and you say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, all these voices as one. And as you recite that Lord's Prayer, the volume starts to increase until it gets to this point, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. Until eventually you hear, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And there is this release of energy and people are shouting and they're excited and the countdown to kick off is just about gone and you run out of that locker room. It is a memorable and an unforgettable experience. And when I was a teenager, as a Christian teenager, this was something that was very meaningful to me. It felt like it was just a piece of heaven to hear all those voices in unison praying for this one thing. But then even then as a teenager, I thought how interesting it was that those very same voices in the next breath are shouting obscenities as they run out, you know, onto the field. And that's kind of how life is. We have these moments, don't we, where we feel like we can sort of see something more. We catch these glimpses of the kingdom of heaven, but most of our life is spent with the things that we can see and taste and touch and feel, the pain and the pleasure of this life. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that if we want the kingdom of heaven, we have to be poor in spirit. That's the verse we just read. If you want the kingdom of heaven, you have to be poor in spirit. And he says, if you are that, then you're blessed. Consider yourself blessed. You might think to yourself, well, I'm already blessed. What do I need to be poor in spirit? I live in the USA, baby. I'm blessed. I live in the most materially blessed time on earth. There are literally Instagram influencers that make really good livings just showing you how blessed they are. 
They've got these, you know, photogenic spouses and these picture-perfect kids. And as you look at their photos, you know, you just know that that kid has never barfed on a table at Bob Evans. <laughs> you know it. And they let you know how blessed their life is with that hashtag blessed. But is that what Jesus is referring to? That type of blessing, a material blessing where you get all you want, where you live a life of ease? Well, I can tell you if that's the case, then, man, something is wrong. Because as a student of human nature, as just somebody that lives in this culture, we are a searching people. We're seeking after something. There is an emptiness and a restlessness to the human heart. And 2,000 years ago, this rabbi named Jesus from Galilee climbed up on a mountainside and he sat down and his disciples gathered around him. And then these multitudes and these crowds gathered around him and he began to speak directly to our restless hearts. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And in these first 12 verses, Jesus introduces this idea of a kingdom, a different type of kingdom. And he begins to pull back this veil between the reality where we see and touch and feel and taste and this other reality that we can't always see called the kingdom of heaven. And in the process, he begins to untangle this tangled mess that we call life. And he shows us a different type of blessing. Now, the Sermon on the Mount runs through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, but the first 12 verses have their own little section. They're called the Beatitudes. Can you say Beatitudes? Beatitudes. That's just me making sure you're out there. It's very dark. I can't see much. Beatitudes simply means, it's a fancy word that means supremely blessed. And the reason why this section, these first 12 verses of Matthew 5 got that, that name is because Jesus uses eight different statements that start with blessed are you, blessed are you. And for us, as we start a brand new series that will run through October and November, each week for the next eight weeks, we're going to go through each of these eight blessed statements. And we're going to see with Jesus what it looks like to walk away from this counterfeit kingdom in which we live, which promises so much and delivers so very little and begin to embrace this upside-down kingdom that he describes. And in the process, we're going to ask him to teach us what it looks like to be truly blessed. Before we read that scripture, Grant, I want to ask you to just join me in prayer. And I want you to pray along with me that God will help to open up your eyes to see what it is that he wants to teach us today. Let's pray. God, we come to you knowing that you are the author of this life. God, in everything, we seek to understand how it is that you want us to live, how you have designed this life to work. And so once again, we find ourselves at your feet, Jesus. We're listening to the echoes of your words spoken on that mountainside so many years ago. We just ask that in this moment, you would speak to our hearts, that you would open them up to understand truth, that you would open our eyes that we might understand and see this kingdom that you describe. Open our ears that we might listen and understand. God, we long to learn from you. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Let's read that passage together one more time. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened up his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God wants us to be blessed. That's the first thing that I want you to know and understand. God's desire for your life is blessing. We have this understanding, or maybe it's just this prevailing thought, that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy. That God is a Debbie Downer, that he's out there just waiting for you to make one slip up so that he can pounce. He wants to keep you under his thumb. It's, it's boring and it's difficult, but that couldn't be further from the truth. God's desire for you is to be blessed. The Greek word there for blessed is makarios. And makarios, the most simple translation for us today would to be to say happy. Happy are you, Jesus says, if you do these things. You'll be happy. And the happiness that Jesus goes on to describe is not a happiness that's dependent upon our circumstances. It's not a happiness that's dependent on how much money or material goods that we have. We've all heard this phrase, right? Money can't buy happiness. Raise your hand if you've heard money can't buy happiness. Well, I think that ultimately... In our culture, we've heard the phrase, but we don't believe it. We think that if we just had what someone else has, then we'd be happier. If I had the newest this or the newest that, well, then I would be satisfied. Then my restless heart would be content. There's been a study going on at Harvard University since 1930 surrounding that one question, can money buy happiness? And now, almost a hundred years later, three generations, thousands of people, the conclusion remains consistent in the same. After your basic needs are met, no amount of money actually predicts happiness in a person's life. And so for you, with your restless heart, if the prescription that you write is more things or better things or newer things, well, that won't bring about a cure. Jesus says that it's not that we need things, it's that we need to become poor in spirit. Now, I'll confess, I've read that passage dozens of times in my life, and I struggled to understand what that meant. And so after studying for a long time on this passage, reading a bunch of what other writers have said and the meanings, I've come to this um, sort of definition that I want us to write down. If you want to pull out your notes or pull out your phone, now's a good time to do that. We, as a church, we worship in spirit and truth. We're not just here to raise our hands and worship. We also want to know what God's word has to say. And here's what it means to be poor in spirit. Essentially, that means that you have a deep awareness of your own need. To be poor in spirit means that you are deeply aware of your need, not material needs, but your spiritual needs. Another way to say that is that you have a deep understanding of just how impoverished your heart is. You haven't run away from that restlessness. You haven't, you haven't fought against the fact that there is something missing. You are deeply aware. And when that happens, Jesus says, you're blessed. Happy is the one who is deeply aware of just how unhappy he is. This is that upside-down kingdom that we're talking about. 
Now, you might be saying to me, David, one of the reasons that I'm here at church this morning is because I'm deeply aware of my own need. I'm seeking and I'm searching. I'm tired of feeling empty. I've tried what this world has to offer, and it brings me nothing that will satisfy me, and I can promise you I'm not happy. In fact, that emptiness is contributing to that unhappiness. I wouldn't say that I, like Jesus, I'm not feeling blessed. I'm feeling cursed by this. And to you, I just want to say that there is hope. You're on the right track. You see, over and over, people came to Jesus to have that emptiness filled. Jesus came, and and as he came, he taught. And as he taught, he said that he has come that we might have life, an abundant life. The life that we are missing and lacking. The life that we don't have because of our deep spiritual poverty. Because of our separation from God. And the disciples came to Jesus for that need. People who were sick and hurting and lame, they came to Jesus. Desperate, poor in spirit. But there was a group that came to Jesus. But without that poverty of spirit. And those were the religious people. And all throughout the New Testament, you might be surprised to know, especially if you're new to church or you haven't read your Bible, that the people that were most opposed to Jesus and his ministry were the most religious people. And you see, there's a reason for this. If you, like me, want to be blessed, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, and if you want to be poor in spirit, then then you can come to Christ. But these religious leaders, they weren't interested in that. These Pharisees were self-righteous. They wanted to come to Jesus so that he would justify their religious program. So that Jesus would validate the things that they were teaching in their leadership positions. But there's a problem. And that's that you cannot actually be self-righteous and poor in spirit at the same time. And so for you, just the same as for them, you may have been banking on your good deeds or your good works, the fact that you go to church or you give money or you have tried to be a good person, but that self-righteousness actually blocks you from being poor in spirit. If you look in Matthew 23, these Pharisees, by the way, had control over the synagogues. They had control over the Sanhedrin, the religious councils. They were the primary teachers Within Israel, they were focused on their own holiness. They were desperately, desperately focused on making sure that they didn't mess up even one little time. And here's what Jesus has to say about them. He says this in Matthew 23, verse 13. In Matthew 23, verse 13. We're going to get it on the screen here in a minute. He says to these scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus wants to offer us the kingdom of heaven, but these ultra-religious people were shutting it in people's faces. Jesus continues in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. 
You've cleaned up the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Our self-righteousness, these Pharisees were so worried about their position of power. They were so worried about what people thought of them. They were more concerned with the outside at being admired than they were with acknowledging the emptiness that was inside. And in the process, their self-righteousness not only blocked heaven for themselves, but they began to shut the door to the kingdom of heaven and other people's faces. And Jesus gives this ultimate warning in verse 33 and 34. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some of you, you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Jesus says, I'm warning you. I am warning you. I am warning you. I will send scribes and prophets to warn you. This path that you are on, this path of religion and look good and be admired and ignore the, the deep spiritual poverty will lead you only to hell. And this warning rings out to us today. You cannot be self-righteous and poor in spirit. And if you're not poor in spirit, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. But I don't think that self-righteousness is ultimately our problem here in the U.S. I think that it's more self-centeredness and self-indulgent. You see, we are people with everything that we could want. We have access to more and newer and better all throughout our life, we have these opportunities to indulge our flesh, to be filled up with things temporarily and incompletely. And whether those are relationships or love or success or winning or buying new things or getting a promotion, whatever these new things are, they will fill you up for a time and they will fill you up incompletely. But you know that when you hit your head on the pillow at night and you lay in bed and you cannot sleep, that you are desperately empty inside. And yet, instead of going to the one who can fill us completely and fully, we just go right back to these self-indulgent things. We drink and we party to forget that emptiness. And we wake up the next day feeling terrible, so we drink and party to forget that emptiness. You buy a new thing because it's new and exciting for a while, but then when it wears off and gets old, you're once again reminded that there's something restless and missing. But the problem with this, of course, is that you can't be self-centered and self-indulgent and poor in spirit. And if we're not poor in spirit, we can't see the kingdom. I want you to imagine with me that you get this, you get a reservation at a fancy restaurant. I mean, this is one of those restaurants that's got stars in front of its name, okay? I don't even know how you get stars, but it's got stars. And it is all the rage and all the buzz, and they have this chef, and she is unbelievable. She is a savant with food. And you somehow snag a reservation. You even snag a date, which might even be more miraculous for some of us, especially those with young kids, all right? 
but you've got a date, you've got a reservation, and at seven, you're going to get this meal. But by six, you're hungry. And so you decide that, you know, on the way, let's just stop in at Burger King. And I'm going to eat, you know, a double Whopper meal real quick. I'm going to satisfy that hunger. And then I'm going to drive to the restaurant. And so you do. You sit in Burger King and you eat your double Whopper meal and you drive to the restaurant and you sit down and this chef who has been preparing this, preparing herself for years for this opportunity and has been preparing this menu for months and is preparing this food all day long. She brings out this exquisite dish for you to taste and you just say, you know what, I'm already full. Because you wouldn't allow yourself to be empty because you wouldn't allow yourself to wait to acknowledge that pain and that restlessness and that emptiness in your life, that deep awareness of need, because you've been filling yourself up with inferior things, it actually blocks you from being poor enough in spirit that you see the kingdom of heaven. Church, you have to become empty if you're going to become filled. There is... There's a, a statement by Billy Graham. I've never forgotten it. And what he says is this. When you finally come to the end of yourself, when you're done trying to get heaven based on your own good works, when you're done trying out all that this world has to offer, when you are finally willing to turn inward and admit that you are lacking and missing something, at that moment, when we finally have given up on trying to do it ourselves, it's at that moment that you come to the beginning of God. And I think that this is exactly what Jesus is trying to say. You're not blessed. You're not happy because of your emptiness. You're happy because once you finally are poor in spirit, once you have admitted your spiritual bankruptcy, when you finally acknowledge the poverty that exists within your own soul, when you see your own wickedness and sinfulness in light of God's perfect holiness and righteousness, you bow your knee, you bow your head, you bow your heart, and you look up. Why are we blessed? Because in that moment, you see that there is salvation. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He calls himself the living water and says that all who will come to him will never thirst or hunger again. If you want to be poor in spirit, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you've got to let go of your self-righteous attempts to justify yourself before God. You can't come to the kingdom of heaven and say, God, I've got this to offer and this to offer and this to offer. Let me in. You've got to give up your self-indulgent and self-centered attempts at, at, at fulfilling this hunger that's inside yourself. You have to just be willing to be empty and say, Jesus, nothing in this world can satisfy me. I acknowledge that I'm hungry, that I am restless and I'm in need. And in that moment, when you've come to the end of yourself, you come to the beginning of God and Jesus calls you blessed. In this upside-down kingdom, it's not that you what you have to offer to God that makes you blessed or happy or wealthy. It's the fact that you acknowledge that there is nothing that you have to offer. 
And so this morning, as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want you to just take a moment of silent reflection. I know that many of us don't get this time in our life, but you're here at church. I wanna invite you, just bow your head, close your eyes and reflect. Maybe prayer is something you do all the time. Maybe it's something you don't do ever, but I wanna invite you to pray. If you're a Christian, think back on that poverty of spirit. Think back on the God who, when you looked up at him, did not show you condemnation, but showed you love and forgiveness. And be thankful. And for those of you who are in here who have come searching, hungry, restless, I want you to know that that restlessness comes because you were meant to be in a relationship with the God that created you. Because of the sin that is in our life, the rebellion that's in our hearts, we can't have a relationship with God. We are only given condemnation for what we have done, judgment. God is perfect and he's holy and sin will be punished. But God, because of his great love for us, while we were still sinners, chose to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. And as Jesus, this perfect substitute and sacrifice, died on that cross in our place, it satisfied that righteous requirement of the law. And now Jesus says that anyone who would call on his name can have salvation. That he, the living water, the bread of life, will fill up what is lacking in your heart. And all you have to do is call out to his name right here, right now. You don't have to have these fancy words. You just have to say, Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I need, I need you to save me. Nothing I have done or could do has earned that salvation. God, I need you. Now, if you prayed that prayer between you and God, what the Bible says is that even now, God has given you a new heart, one that's not empty and restless, but one that can rest in the promise and in the peace that God wants to offer to you. Your sins are forgiven. You've been made new. But we as a church, I want to celebrate with you. I want to walk with you. I want to show you what those next steps might look like. And so before you leave today, if you prayed that prayer, I want you to go to this website, decision.church. You can also stop out at our Connect Center. We have a book that we would like to give to you. This book will help you as you take this new step of faith. But we want to rejoice with you, pray for you, walk with you. And so make sure that you fill those out. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you have done and for who you are. God, your grace is amazing. We have nothing to offer to you and yet you give us everything. Lord, may we be poor in spirit, recognizing just how much we are loved. And Jesus, in the process of coming to the foot of the cross, will you just satisfy and quiet our restless hearts? God, may we not get caught up in a self-righteous mentality or a self-centered and self-indulgent mentality, but continue day by day to come to the living water and the bread of life that we might have life and life abundant. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.